Hi, Loretta. Good morning. Good morning, Franklin. It's it's awfully good to be in your presence again. As you know, it's always my privilege to be with you and to uh, be another one of these um, Butler Legacy podcasts. Um, I've been truly excited. Just the feedback we continue to get from all of our wonderful guests who continue to tune in to the work that we're doing here. As you know, the 50th anniversary of our independence is right around the corner, July 10th. And just to hear the feedback. I love it. And, you know, interestingly today... We actually have a new location. Uh, we are in the main art gallery of the Bahamar. We're downstairs in the current. And I must say, all of the spaces here are phenomenal. So I'm very happy to be in the current today. And I must also take this opportunity to thank Bahamar for um, being one of our sponsors. And also, of course, the... Um, Butler Legacy Foundation for being our sponsor as well. Today is going to be a very exciting show. We've got uh, an amazing guest, and obviously he's one of those persons whom I admire tremendously because of his depth of knowledge when it comes to the history of the Bahamas. Absolutely. And so, you know, before we let you introduce our wonderful guest, uh, we just want to thank all of our patrons, uh, those who continue to follow the Butler Legacy podcast for joining us. I mean, um, we have a wonderful guest today, but we always have wonderful guests on our show. And really what we've been focused on is telling stories, really trying to focus on using uh, our story of the Butler family to inspire, to provide engagement and encourage other legacy families to take control of their stories. 50 years later, not everybody's going to remember. And so we want to invite you, all of you out there who have stories, who know what has happened to build this country, to do whatever you can to tell your story, to make sure that the story is not lost. And I think without any further ado, I think it's a great opportunity if you introduce our guest. Well, I certainly will. But I must say that, you know, one of the things that I have found since we started this podcast is the more that people are engaged in watching this, the more names come forward, Absolutely. the more times people are saying, you know, you really should tap into this particular individual. So it is such a privilege today for me to be able to introduce, as I said, someone whom I greatly admire from an, for his um, depth of knowledge when it comes to history. We have None other than uh, one of our leading, leading um, legal minds in the Bahamas. Um, I like the fact that he was actually a rebel very early yeah, yes, on yes. in life, <laughs> and he was expelled from school. Uh, but obviously, most brilliant people, you know, they go through these sort of things. Um, and so I want to say today, it is our distinct honor to have with us um, King's Counsel, and notable historian and published author, none other than Mr. Sean McQueenie. Mr. McQueenie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I know you, uh, uh, you know, have a tendency to probably start off shy. So let me just give our <laughs> audience a couple of facts that we've highlighted on who Mr. McQueenie is. So Sean McQueenie QC served as Attorney General for the Bahamas from January 1989 to August 1992. He also served as a senator from 1985 to 1992 and leader of the government in the Senate. Mr. McQueenie was called to the Bahamas Bar in 1978 and admitted to the Inner Bar as Queen's Counsel in 2009. He is a senior partner in Graham Thompson, one of the nation's largest and oldest law firms. Mr. McQueenie's political involvement dates back to 1969, when at the age of 16, he was elected president of Unicom 
something I got to learn about at his recent lecture series with Sir Franklin. Then the leading pro-independent, radical left-wing pressure group, which famously burned the Union Jack on Clifford Park during the Queen's birthday celebrations in 1969 as a protest against colonialism. In 1970, Mr. McQueenie again became embroiled in a major public controversy when he was expelled from Queen's College following an inflammatory public address as head boy, criticizing the lack of behaminization of both the school faculty and the curriculum. Mr. McQueenie hmm. was elected the national chairman of the governing Progressive Liberal Party in 1984 and served five terms. In August 2002, Mr. McQueenie was appointed the chairman of the Constitutional Commission, the body mandated to review and recommend changes to the Constitution of the Bahamas in advance of the country's 40th anniversary of independence in 2013. The best word to describe him is a rebel. Ah, uh, you know, and it's interesting because that's just a literal snapshot of the diversity of our guest today. But, you know, Sean, I want to ask you, um, with all of your accomplishments, with all of the great things that you've done, I want to take you back to those early days. I'd like to you for you, because what people may not know is that in all of your um conversations about bohemianization your dad was a british subject if, if i'm correct american american yeah. okay mm -hmm. all right and of course i would like to hear a little bit about your involvement with unicom yeah sure um okay i i think it's because of sir franklin wilson that i got involved in unicom i was involved in a high school debate uh, at what was then the, gov the government high school where ub is now and um after the debate uh, Sir Franklin, or Frankie Wilson as he is to me, yeah. uh, my very, very dear friend, uh, came up to me and told me about this organization, Unicom, and invited me to join, uh, which I did. <clears throat> I was 16, and a year later I was president. <laughs> uh, I was the youngest guy by far. I mean, because, you know, Frankie and all the other guys were like seven, eight, some cases 10 years older than I was. But um, I became president, um, and it was very much the leading left-wing organization of its day. We were the first group to consistently call for independence. This would have been like in the late 60s, early 70s. And then it became fashionable uh, to call for it. But we were the first group, not the first persons to do it, mind you, because people like Randall Fox and I think Carl Francis uh, and Loftus Roker uh, and certainly A.D. Hanna had periodically called for it. But I think we were the first group to develop a consistent drumbeat um, you know, calling for independence. At such a young age, your exposure, your insight, um, your depth of thought um, given to such a huge subject matter. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, because obviously you had very strong convictions. And I'd like to know how your family felt when you got expelled from Queens College as well. Actually, actually, they were very supportive. Um, Interesting. My, uh, because you know it, they saw it as a point of principle. Uh, you know what I'd done. I was head boy at QC. I had finished SAC. I had uh, completed my full five years there. I was class valedictorian. Did very well there. But I had to go to QC to do my A levels because I wanted I to do see. law. And St. Augustine's was a was an American school, they didn't offer A-levels, so I went to QC and to do A-levels, and I became head boy there. And as head boy, I had to make a commencement day address. And in the address, um, I 
basically dealt with three things. One was that I decried the lack of Bahamianization of the curriculum. Mm. I said, you know, we, we, we all know the depth and uh, length of the Thames River, but we don't know anything about the Bahamas, Absolutely. Right? And went on in that vein. And I also decried the lack of Bahamianization of the teaching staff. All of the teachers were English, mm -hmm. right? And I said, this was unacceptable. And thirdly, I said that QC was a very privileged kind of school, um, straddling uh, a very well-to-do affluent community on the village roadside. For sure. And east of that. But on the other side was Camp Road. That's right. And um, I, I said, I thought that the school had to have a greater sense of social consciousness. And in particular, it ought to make its facilities available after school hours to kids in the Camp Road area. Mm -hmm. Because there had been a controversy about kids from Camp Road wanting to come to play basketball and not being allowed to do it. This was after school was finished. Right. So those are the three things I dealt with. So, you and, know, uh, this <laughs> sounds is... pretty tame now, but it created quite a fire But it's so interesting because here you have Head Boy yeah, yeah. giving the final commencement exercise. Literally, I'm not sure he actually could have been expelled. Um, you would have, you would have, you would have been finished by that point. No, this was at, Remember, I, I became Head Boy in the year I went there. Oh, uh, okay. So, and it was I was there for two years. So this was at the end of my first year. Got gotcha. you. So yeah. So this was in this was in the summer of nineteen. How did you complete your A levels? I never did. That was the end of my formal education. Oh my god! And I never went to college. <laughs> I never did the A-levels. And that's why I ended up doing my articles here. Uh, I never oh went to goodness. London. I, I did my articles of clerkship, studied law entirely here. Yeah, that is that is amazing. So if we were to actually look at all of the things that you articulated, that you stood for, that you actually brought to the consciousness, if you will, of persons in your age group and persons perhaps older than you, um, I guess what I'd like to know is this was a natural progression then to your political career. Yes, very much so, because... Unicom um, was a very independent pressure group, as I said, not affiliated with any party. But what happened was um, Sir Franklin, Frank, uh, uh, Frankie Wilson, decided he wanted to go into frontline politics for the PLP. Mm. And that created a crisis for the organization. Um, some, like myself, decided we, would, we wanted to, you know, follow Frankie's example and also affiliate with the PLP. There were others who wanted to affiliate with with uh, what was then the Free PLP, mm -hmm. which would soon morph into the FNM. Yeah, right. People like Dwight Sawyer and our organization is a good <laughs> example of that. Um, and he later became chairman of the FNM. Right. And then there were others who wanted to um, associate with uh, what was left of the NDP, the National Democratic Party, which was Paul Adley's party. Mm -hmm. And a few went and joined that. So. But, but what about said, the John I, I, McCartneys of the world? John came a little bit later. John, okay. yeah, John uh, came a little bit later. He wasn't. Uh, he, he he was there, but not during the critical period that I'm. Well, sorry, he wasn't in this critical period. Yeah, John was there because John was the guy who left, who led a, a fourth movement. Remember, some are going to the PLP, some are going to the Free PLP, some are going to the NDP. But John had this great idea to form his own party the Vanguard Nationalist and Socialist Party. Mm. And so that's what happened. Another uh, part of the group went and did that. Interesting. But that was the end of Unicorn, really. Yeah. That was the it, end of mm -hmm. Unicorn. But Unicorn, Franklin, was such a, 
an influential body, if you will. Um, if you look at the characters that Sean spoke to and those individuals, they were a huge part of our transformation from colonialism Absolutely. to bohemianization. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. But you see, this was that young grouping um, that, you know, persons like our grandfather, he was not um, a scholar. Agreed. He was not a university student or anything like that. But he was a civil activist. Absolutely. But this younger generation that came behind, especially after the change of 1967, and they had been exposed to um, tertiary education abroad, they became almost like the action magnets, if you will, of the progressive liberal movement. Right later the Progressive Liberal Party. Yeah, yeah. That's correct. And you remember this was the age of revolt all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. The, the late 60s, early 70s, you know, the student movement was uh, at the height of its power, really, in the United States, in France, in the UK. So the Bahamas was very much a part of this international mosaic. You know? But you were before your time. I'll say, and, and I say that simply because at the age of 16, Unicom had not yet come into being, and you had already determined as a young man that it was important for the institution of Queen's College, which probably just a few years before allowed people of our hue into it, to, yeah. to in there, yeah, but right. you, you were an agitator, if you will, to ensure that they became more of a social partner. Because geographically, on their western side is, is Camp Road, right. on their eastern side is Blair. Yeah. I mean, you talk about a juxtaposition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that sums it up very well. Yeah, and that and that was the that was the, the the conflict and the crisis that you know QC was sort of struggling to deal with. Yeah. Of course, you know the Methodist Church was in the background there, and they were having their own issues. Yeah. you know this was when Reverend Edwin Taylor had just come to the Bahamas, and you know the, there's a story all of its own in that, you know, he was a black That's man right. from the Caribbean and he was thrust into the leadership position here uh, where before, you know, the, the uh, you know, white Bahamians and white Englishmen had dominated this, this sector. And uh, I must say, Reverend Evan Taylor incidentally was very supportive of me personally. Oh, good. During my whole crisis at Queen's College. Yeah, yeah. He was also uh, a very, very um, scholarly um, theologian, if, if you was. will. He was. And I, I do believe bringing um, a wider perspective from his personal background um, in the Caribbean. But, you know, as we move forward and we look at the social change that you would have encountered, mm -hmm. being probably among um, the early persons who would have gone to Queens College as a person of color. Um, the same thing happening in a parallel fashion at St. Andrews. Yeah. Um, you had you had you had been a part of GHS, if I will. No, no St. August, St. Augustine, St. Augustine's, yeah. St. Augustine's. Yeah. But the one school that we had where despite color, was GHS, government, the, which people now refer to as the, the government high, high school. Time, yep, yep. And so when you, when you look at all of this, this is something that I think that a lot of young people today mm -hmm. don't truly appreciate even the struggle for education for persons of color. Mm -hmm. yep. No, you're absolutely right. And if I, if I recall correctly, I think your cousin 
Uh, was it Raleigh? Raleigh, my brother. Your brother, yeah, yeah, your yeah, cousin. My cousin, yes. Um, was the first one, person of color to go to San Andreas, I believe. Great. Eh? That's great. Yeah. That's right. In 67. We, we yeah. like Queens College, um, only had uh, the... Well, we were totally under the British system. Right. Our educational system was British, but all of the teachers in both St. Andrews and Queen's College were all um, from from Great Britain. Right. But as we move forward, I think one of the things that we need to also speak to is how, in your opinion, how, in your opinion, do you think that that impacted um, our, us as a society? Well, you know, let me make the point that by the time I went to QC, which was in 1970, sorry, 1969, um, it had uh, had developed a pretty advanced state of racial integration mm -hmm. uh, for a couple of reasons. One was that the PLP was now in power. Mm -hmm. And as you know, education uh, became the top priority for the PLP. Right. And it tied scholarships and grants to schools to integration. So in other words, don't come to us for any assistance if you're practicing you racial uh, segregation. Um, added to that, there was a new headmaster who was responsible for my expulsion, actually, eventually, ironically, <laughs> Reverend Neville Stewart, who was a very radical, socialist-minded, English Methodist minister. And he and Cecil Wallace Wayfield were as thick as thieves. I mean, they were incredibly close. Wow. Um, and the, the the story, for example, that you know the the famous schools that don't have windows. Yeah, Stephen Dillard. So, um, that this was Uriah McPhee. This, this, this idea was inspired by Reverend Stewart, Neville ah. Stewart. They were very very close. And uh, had Cecil stayed in the PLP, there's no doubt that Neville Stewart probably would have become director of education. Interesting. But he was a very radical guy, and actually, I was quite fond of him because he was of of a like spirit, really. And he's the guy who made me. Head boy. In those days, you didn't run for election. You were appointed head boy by, you know, the, the headmaster. So he appointed we, you and disappointed you. Exactly. <laughs> very, very, very much so. Very much so. But I think that, you know, um, you know, looking back, um, there were clearly some external uh, forces at work. As I said, the main one, I think, is the fact that there was a change in government in 67, uh, which very, and, and the new government very aggressively pursued um, a policy of, of complete desegregation of the school system and tied that to government support. Mm -hmm. And that, that in turn, you know, acted as a stimulus for the schools to, to expedite integration. So if you look at QC in 66 uh, or 65 and look at it in 1970, it, it, it was almost 50-50 by then. Mm -hmm. But, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, here we are 50 years later we're on the the precipice of actually celebrating 50 years as an independent country. And many would say that we've achieved many things. But one of the challenges that you had as a 16-year-old was the fact that you could give me all the facts about the Tudors and the Victorians and the Thames. And yep. today, we still, I mean, I, I would like for you to expound on this. Have we actually reached a point in history where Bahamians understand the history of the Bahamas? No history. Absolutely not. No, not 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 at all. It's probably worse now than it was before, um, because there's so many you know uh, external influences, you know, pressing upon you know Bahamian consciousness with social media and uh, all of these other 
uh, you know, foreign cultural influences. Um, and I find that uh, it's, a, it's a, an abysmal level of ignorance out there in mm -hmm. history. Um, you know, um, w when I got involved in politics, I had, looking back, probably something of the same concern because um, the political history that the PLP taught really began with your, you your grandfather, yeah. Milo Butler. Um, you didn't hear anything about what came before um, Milo Butler. Um, and I think that was because the leaders of that generation themselves hadn't really been exposed. True. So this has been a problem that we've had been, been dealing with for, you know, through generations. So when you talk about the Milo Butler, you know, and, you know, us sometimes saying, you know, history seems to have began in 1967. Yeah. I think that when you talk about the the Dillettes and you talk about the A.F. Adderleys and you talk about all of those persons of color mm -hmm. who would have actually entered the House of Assembly before Milo Butler, right. um, it is so important that while we know that our grandfather did a lot, that he was a huge um, social um consciousness, if you will, there were other black people, there were other persons even of what we would call the brown hue or the colored hue who stood for social justice. And, you know, I think you said um, in a discourse recently, and I, I wanted you to expand on this a bit, when you said that maybe back then you might've gotten a few things wrong with regards to what the British actually did for us in terms of assisting us to get to independence. Um, would you like to share a little bit yeah, more I think about if you, that? If you read the governor's dispatches, in the governor's dispatches, um, there's a huge archive of these at the archives department here. And they go all, back, all the way back to the 1600s, believe it or not, mm. even to the, you know, the proprietary period, all the way up to independence. And the governor's dispatches were basically uh, correspondence uh, back and forth between the governor here and the colonial office in London. And they were able to speak very frankly and openly because they, they realized that these were privileged communications they weren't gonna get in the public domain. So they spoke very frankly. And so, for example, you would see that during the period of your grandfather, uh, when he first got involved in, 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 in the late 30s, there was a lot of correspondence back and forth about you know how corrupt and um, <laughs> awful this electoral system is, and they talked about how you know Samila was the victim of you know uh, bribery and, and and coercion and all these other things and how mm -hmm. they revoked his credit at the bank and all of these things. So there's a lot of um, sympathetic discussion there, Interesting. but more than sympathetic discussion, you could see that you know it started the wheels turning in the heads of the the. Um, the decision makers of the colonial office in London. And if you look at all of the major political changes that took place here in the, in the 20th century, uh, up up until the time of independence, nearly all of those were inspired by the British, you know, they were not mm. homegrown things. Interesting. For example, the, the getting rid of the property vote, um, um, uh, getting rid of the company vote, uh, those were the direct result of intervention by the British. That is... And, and what they, the th you see the one lever they always had, they said, look, if you all don't pull up your socks and reform yourselves and come out of the medieval period, we're gonna make you a crown colony. Mm. And they were terrified of that because a crown colony, technically speaking, is a colony where the British rule directly. <laughs> you know, you <laughs> can keep your house assembly, but we'll come in here and we will actually run the government. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Forget about this thing of having to depend on grants from the assembly. We will run the, the, uh, the country. 
And so they always threatened that. And whenever they did that, the, the local oligarchy tended to, to back off, you know? So, so generally, um, the, the news, if you will, that was, that traversed between, um, Great Britain and the Bahamas was directly linked to the actions of the Milo Butlers, of the, um, folks, because when they talk about the Burma Road riots, which they described actually mm -hmm. as, as being a riot, right. um, I guess all of this would have been, uh, corresponded back to, to the, the home office. Absolutely. I'll give you an example of how it worked. You know, in 1938, your grandfather ran for the first time for the House of Assembly and lost, got slaughtered <laughs> um, by Harry Oakes. Uh, and the, the, the pro-Harry Oakes electoral machine was so finely oiled, yeah, yeah. he didn't even campaign. He was in L London for the whole time, I think on vacation, never yeah. came back. He left everything to his main man of business, who was his lawyer, A.K. Solomon. So Kenneth Solomon, who was at the time the ruling political figure in the Bahamas, the most influential political figure. But it was such a shameful, I mean, over-the-top um, travesty, um, I mean, involving the most blatant bribery. Wow. Uh, there, there's a very famous story that's quoted of, of some guy who very triumphantly brought a two-pound note home to his wife. And um, she apparently was so outraged that he'd been bribed that she took her shoes off and <laughs> beat him all through the town, right? Well. But anyway, it, it was, I mean, every, you know, the bribery was just, just out of this world. But the following year, when Harry Oakes was elevated to the Legislative Council yes. and had to, had to give up his seat in the House, there was a, there was a fresh by-election and your father got That's in. That's correct. Right? That's correct. And um, people were a bit annoyed that Harry Oakes had done that because the Western District was one of the few constituencies which had always been dominated by black representatives. Um, and so even in that election, I think his opponent was Dr. Rogers, I think. Probably, yeah. Uh, and, and, he, and he beat Dr. Rogers. But, um, but again, I think it was because, I mentioned that because I think it was mainly because of the, the, the egregious uh, instances of bribery in the election the year before that inspired um, a, a, a move towards a much more acceptable system of electioneering. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the first election that was that used the secret ballot. Yeah, I just- In 1930, I, 1939. I must say, because I just, I sent you an excerpt from a book, book recently, absolutely. which we, we must get our hands on, which actually spoke to this. Yeah. And I think that herein is probably a part of, you know, our history that sometimes pro-67, post-67, if you will, there was a lot of anti-white, anti-colonialism, yep. anti-all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get this in here because we now see that the British were not well, as should not be portrayed as negatively as, you know, right after our transition that, that, that we do verbally, if yeah. you will. I think, I think um, the British have to be viewed at two levels, though. I think uh, there was a lot of racism practiced by British uh, citizens who were living here. Yes. Okay. And that tended, unfortunately, to radiate out. Yeah. so that people formed the view that all English people were racist. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. But, uh, but if you look at the, the, the Englishmen who were here at the official level, either as governors or right below the level of governors, colonial secretary, and even more so the English officials in, the, in London, 
who were sort of managing the Bahamian desk, so to speak. Uh, that's where I think you find the more progressive, the more reformist Got you. forces that's at work. That's great clarity. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so, great clarity. Yeah. So yeah. we think about that, um, Mr. McQueen. Help me understand. Talk a little about your observations of independence. 50 years on, you know, I see obviously we have much, we are now in charge of our own governance. Mm -hmm. But when I hear you talk about the fact that the history, we still don't talk about Bahamian history. What have been your observations? Where have we made progress and where have we not from yeah. where you stand, you know, being yeah. a member of Unicol, right. a Unicorn, com, and where we are now? I, th I think we, uh, there's a lot that we can be very proud of and, and a lot of great things that we have accomplished. Uh, one, I think we have developed a sense of uh, our unique identity in the global community. Yep. And we've done very well, I think, at uh, positioning ourselves as a part of what I call the non-aligned world, right? There are obviously a lot of pressures on us Absolutely. from you know, the big superpowers to align um, with them, uh, to be in lockstep with them. But I think we've resisted that you know, all through the years. And uh, you know we have become uh, a significant voice in many areas of international affairs. Most recently, for example, on the whole climate change thing, where, yes. where, where Prime Minister Davis has become a recognized spokesman uh, for this cause uh, at, at, at the global level. So I think we've done very well in things like that. We've also done very well in terms of the institutional um, uh, strengthening of um, the Bahamas. Um, all of the major institutions that we take for granted now, you know, national insurance, yep. um, you know, Bahamas Air, the Development Bank, um, Broadcasting Corporation, there's about 20 of them. Yep. Uh, all of these are basically post-independence creations, mm -hmm. you know. And um, so uh, clearly that part of the agenda has been, you know, essentially fulfilled. Um, however, <clears throat> I think where we have um, fallen down is that I think we're still a very tribalized society. No question. And one of the great aims of independence, you know, is to create a sense of national identity that transcends, you know, partisan differences, yeah. that sort of thing. But we're very tribalized. And if you look at the way governments have operated over the last 50 years, um, you know, it's as if uh, every five years, and we tend to change governments every five years, you put one half of the national brain to sleep. Yep. And what I mean by that is that you, you, you start off from a position where you're fairly evenly divided anyway, mm -hmm. half PLP, half FNM. But when the FNM gets in, they don't want to have anything to do with PLPs. Mm -hmm. They don't want PLPs to be involved in governance at all. And correspondingly, when the PLP get in, they do pretty much the same thing. Well, well, let, let's just stick a pin there. Um, there are exceptions. I, no, no, no. What I, what, I, what I wanted to say was, and you know, when you talk about political maturity and putting the other um, half of the brain to sleep, I must say that, you know, if there's one thing I do admire about our current prime minister, um, Brave Davis, and I hope that this is continued as we move forward. Um, even though I'm out of frontline politics, my political life has been um, aligned with the yeah. free national movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for him to actually, if you will, reach across the aisle and bring me in mm -hmm. and say, listen, and not just me, there are others, mm -hmm. there are others. Mm -hmm. And I love that because we have got to begin to have a unified Bahamas. Uh, that's the only way we're going, we're too small to be so tribal. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, they have, there have always been exceptions, uh, even going back to Salinden. Uh, Salinden uh, very famously brought in 
uh, Sir Jeffrey Johnstone, True, who, who was the last right. leader of the UBP. That's right. Um, and Bobby Simonette. Tell me more. To be members of the Hotel Corporation. That's oh, true. Which at that the time was one of the most important hotel, uh, most important government corporations. But he caught hell for that. As, I mean, as, his, as, his, his as, as does any other told um, party them, don't leader. Dare, don't you dare do that again. Wow. <laughs> right? Because they said, I mean, to, to them that was treason, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. Uh, how, how, dared you, how dared you reach beyond your own party to bring in the enemy into your bosom? Yeah. And it, it was really such an immature point of view, but it really was the prevailing thought back then. And so you find that, uh, I think we've, we've matured a great deal since then, but uh, Pending, I think, was so chastened by it, he didn't really try <laughs> it again. He was afraid to do it he again. He was afraid to do it again. And, um, and subsequent prime ministers. Well, Hubert Ingram, to his credit, I mean, I've always been a PLP. Hubert Ingram, to his credit, made me chairman of uh, the and Judicial Review Commission. And you did an excellent commission. job. Um, I just wish we could I, dust I, it when, off. And they had to restructure the police force. I mean, okay. he also put me, made me, he and Frank Watson made me chairman of that. Um, so I must say that there have always been exceptions. Well, I think but that it doesn't, as happen, we, it doesn't happen enough. Yeah. As we move yeah. forward over the next 50 years, I think that, you know, uh, it would behoove us as a country to always bring our best forward, whether they're overseas, no whether mm -hmm. they're on the other political side of the divide, wherever they are. This is the only way I believe we are going to actually have a strong Bahamian identity to begin to identify who we are, because exactly. we're still unsure, we're too, I think. And we're too small a country. I agree. Uh, to have this this kind of divisiveness. It just, it just it makes no sense, really. So I think we all have to develop a level of political maturity that enables us to to see beyond these partisan divides. Well, you and you you're a good man based because on marriage, you know? you're a good man because I think all political parties have seen the 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 um, benefit of utilizing your 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 brain thrust. I wanted to ask you though, as a much younger person mm -hmm. in the political field, but having been um, the confidant of persons at every level of the PLP, what are your recollections of our grandfather, Samilo? Do you have any at all? Um, I had very little personal interaction with Samilo because uh, when I was sort of coming in, he was on starting to on, on starting his exit. But um, he was, you know, a an iconic figure. I mean, he was in a class by himself. Um, he was truly the most iconic most heroic figure I think the PLP has ever had. Mm. Um, and the PLP was very, very proud to have him as a part of it. Because, you know, initially he, he wasn't exactly. a PLP. They didn't want anything to do with the PLP. Yeah. Like many other uh, black behemoths at the time, they were very suspicious about these mulattoes, these red guys. <laughs> you know, what, what were they really after? Did they just want acceptance from the white power brokers or what? So he was very reluctant to join, but he wasn't alone. I mean, A.D. Hanna mm -hmm. took the same cautious uh, approach and didn't join until much later on. Paul Adley too, was the same way. There were a number of black Bahamians who didn't. Um, but by the time the 56 elections rolled around, Samilo was, was fully on board, right? Um, he was always known to be his, his own man. Um, my only encounter with him was actually um, after I left, was thrown out of QC, I worked for a time uh, at the Bahamas Federation of Trade Unions. And um, my task really was just a very inglorious one to just take notes <laughs> at, at these meetings. And he was he was minister of labor at the time, and I was take you know taken along by I think it was Catherine and Bristol and Philip Smith, 
who were the leaders of the Airport Workers Union, which was a part of the Bombers Federation Trade Unions. And Sumailo, the two things that made me remember this so vividly, one was that Sumailo conducted the conciliation meeting in person, which is very unusual for a minister. Um, and this was a case of some porter who had done something which had resulted in his being sacked by Pan American Airways, mm -hmm. as, as it then was. And the head of Pan American was there, you know, big time American guy. And so Milo was there very patiently taking notes, listening to it. And all of a sudden at the end, he just turns to the Pan Am guy, this, this white English American, and he says, where is your heart? Where is your heart? And in a very loud, booming voice And he voice was a too. big man. Yeah, big man. You know? And the guy was, I mean, immediately flushed. He went totally red, right? <laughs> and he proceeded to lecture him. He says, you know, uh, in life, it's not just going by the book, you know. It's just, mm -hmm. You have to have a heart. You know, where's your compassion? This is a man who has a family. You know, yeah. you've thrown him out into the street. That's the appeal he took to him. Wow. And it worked. The guy agreed to take him back. Ah. And then I thought it was over. And then he turns to the guy, the, the porter. Yeah. And he says, let me tell you something, young man. Uh, if you have to drink, drink water, yeah. <laughs> right? And then with that, he's stormed out. Yeah. Oh my god! And if I only found it afterwards, like because I asked Philip Smith, they said, "What was that about the thing about drinking water?" He says, "Well, the, apparently the guy did have a bit of a drinking problem." Ah. And so Milo had obviously heard about this, and so that was his farewell message to him. But it, it showed the kind of a couple of things about him. First of all, the hands-on approach that he had to problems. He didn't delegate these things to civil servants. And also, of course, one of his trademark qualities, which was compassion. Yeah. Uh, and, and taking the side of the small man against the big man. Absolutely. You know, but, but still uh, not giving them right for doing wrong. Absolutely. Ex exactly. Absolutely. That's you the know? point. Exactly. That's, that's, that's a, key, a key message there. But, um, you know, as I said, he was in a class by himself. Um, and PLP history, as I said, really began with Milo Butler. Mm. Um, you know, there was no history you heard about that predated the late 1930s. And it usually began with the story about how he went up, went up against Goliath yeah, sorry. in 1938, lost, came back in 39 and won, and uh, was just uh, a, 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 an outspoken man who just didn't compromise. I mean, there were so many legendary stories, which were true, yeah. about Samilo, how, for example, he just stormed into the Royal Bank of Canada, which was the only bank back then, the only clearing bank, and said, you know, he wanted to see the manager and the manager wouldn't come out. So he said, okay, I'll address him from here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he stood at the I counter yeah, exactly. in a booming voice. <laughs> exactly. And then the guy came out <laughs> and he said, I, I just want to know why I said that, that there's nobody behind this counter who looks like me, yeah, yeah. except the, the janitress. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, that took a lot of lot of nerve. One time he carried Pending with him, and Pending said he was terrified because <laughs> he wasn't used to this. You yeah. know. Yeah. Well, I think I think also, you know, when you when you hear persons like Pauline Allen, yeah. you know, speak to the fact, I think that she was probably one of the first, first. if not the first, black person to become employed at RBC and to be grateful for the for Absolutely. the actions of a Milo Butler. Man. But also, you know, Mr. Pindling, I'm sure in his own rights was a very courageous man, but you know, he was very small compared to for a sure. Milo Butler of yeah, that yeah. day very much in so. terms of size. Very much so. And so I'm sure he would have also been comforted by the fact that, you know, there was oh, yeah, a big, yeah. big yeah. man in front of him, yeah. you know. Absolutely. <laughs> but, Absolutely. but you know, it's 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 these sort of impact stories, I feel, that we as black people, we as Bahamians, we 
all need to understand that, you know, this is, this is how we have got to teach and tell our stories, just like the Jews continue no to tell their yep. story, um, so that we can gain a strong sense of identity and moving forward over the next 50 years. Well, that's the thing, you know, that, that was what was so unique about uh, uh, Samilo, was that uh, whilst there were other influential black leaders of the 30s and 40s, uh, what was distinctive about him was that he moved from a position where his compassion, his social compassion, was informed by a great sense of righteousness of what was right and what was wrong. Yeah, yeah. You had people like L.W. Young, for example, who was very much an opportunistic type politician, mm. um, who, who certainly was not in the same category at all. Um, he was a guy who was driven more by expediency than principle, mm. whereas Samila was driven by this this overarching, uh, you know, desire to be an instrument for the true um, progress of, of the black Bahamian. I also wanted to, I also wanted to introduce a bit more about your personal life, sure. if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a phenomenally beautiful wife. Thank you. She was, well, of course, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> she was Miss Bahamas. Yeah. <laughs> your grandmother, the late Pearl Cox was probably one of the original um, committee members right. of the Miss Bahamas committee. So I know you have a great eye for beauty. Um, but of course she, her father as well, um, would have been a large figure in, in life, in, in Bahamian life. But mm -hmm. I want to know, did you both in, uh, enjoy the political, um, life or did you introduce and influence her in that because she became a senator mm -hmm. in the bahamas as well yeah when, when we met uh, and let me say next year will be our 50th <laughs> wow uh, yeah congratulations yeah, right, for 49 years started very early you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> i like that um but uh sip actually we we met each other when i think i was we were 19, 18 or 19 something like that and she wasn't very much involved in politics then. I was, of course, a, a big part of radical politics with Unicom. But she'd come from a political tradition because That's her right. father, uh, Freddie Munnings, was, a, as you know, in addition to being a leading, mm -hmm. um, you know, entertainer and singer and um, impresario, all sorts of things. He was a leading political figure. And, um, you know, he'd, he had done very well for a long time and he would provided a lot of money to the PLP. Mm -hmm. Provided, you know, the cat and fiddle as, a, as the place for con conventions, the sort of thing. Uh, and he was a true believer. I mean, he really believed in the cause of majority rule. So she came from that tradition, was very much a part of it. But um, Sip, I can tell you, is Sip for Cipriano, is, is much more of a politician than I am. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, Sip is eats, drinks, and sleeps politics. Um, uh, it, there's a sort of routine in my house that if I'm home and the House of Assembly is on, we will never be in the same room because she, she she watches that gavel to gavel. I'm serious, and and running commentary on it too. Wow, she's there, you know, telling this when he's making a good point, telling another when he's talking foolishness. She, she's very interactive yeah. viewing. So she she is really much very involved. She's a star with council of the of the PLP. But your your lives complemented each other so well in in that well, regard. Well, she was never really when when I met Sip, she wasn't interested in my type of politics. I got you. Unicom. She was never part of Unicom. Um and um uh she became much more involved later on when I became involved with the PLP. You know, cuz we would go to family islands together campaigning and she she always liked 
she always liked that part of uh, the political experience. But but I mean, she is just loves politics. And loves you have it. you have three children. Yep. Yes. You have two daughters. Yes. You have a son who's walking in your footsteps, Sean Jr. Yep. Uh, very charming young man. Um, is he going to be following in your footsteps? Otherwise, I I don't think any of my kids have any real interest in politics. Um, I, I mean, it remains to be seen what what the future holds. But I don't think, you know, my two my both my daughters are teachers; they're mm -hmm. educators, and so that is a very consuming thing for them. Um, that said, neither of them has neither of my daughters has ever had any interest in politics. I think if of the three, the one who's probably likely to be more interested is my son Sean, but. I think he's interested in more cutting edge things like yeah. you know data protection, data yeah. privacy. Yeah. He has a great real passion for that. Um, uh, you know, and the we whole see thing, him. robotics we see and him IT. actually working very closely with, with Franklin, 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 part of the technology yeah. team. Has become one of his mentors. He, <laughs> I think he thinks the world of Franklin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And has told me how much he's learned. But you know, on, it's on interesting um, because I think that after all that you've been through. You've never been a um, a candidate. Oh no, no, I had a, I had a, always had an aversion to frontline politics. You've, you've, really? you've never you've never yeah. been mm -hmm. a candidate, but you've always had you've had the opportunity and you've embraced it. Yes, and you we've know, used you in very key yeah. ministries. Yeah, I uh, you know I was very close to Selinden, and um, Selinden was always trying to. Uh, tricked me into running, <laughs> right? <laughs> he even got caught out one time because I was chairman of the party and the Tribune one day published photographs of these huge signs which had been painted, said Sean McQueenie, PLB candidate for Centerville. This is when Perry had been uh, was was had been alienated from the party. In the, in the 84, yeah, right, around and, 83, and 84. I went to, so then I said, what's this about? He says, no way, I'm not running, you know? And um, <laughs> I was never interested in frontline politics. I did try it once at his insistence. I went into uh, Oaks Field, which at the time was represented by Philip Pinder, but mm -hmm. Philip had basically gone to the States and was in, coming back, he'd lost interest. And so Tommy Turncrest was the MP and the PLP needed somebody. I, I think I was in cabinet by this time. And I lasted for two weeks. Wow. I did a house to house campaign for two weeks. And I said, no way. Because that first week, I mean, I was practically picked clean. <laughs> I can uh, I can only imagine. Yeah, and I I just couldn't believe <laughs> the amount of need. Yeah, and the brass and, of, and the brass of these people. <laughs> you know, they wanted you to. There's some. There was one woman whose daughter was getting married and wanted me to pick up the tab for the wedding. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, another one showed me her fridge, which had broken down. Wanted a new fridge, and told me what kind she wanted too. Um, every house, like they were sort of waiting for you and they all had their own personal agenda. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. Of course, I succumbed to none of this, but I, I said, look, man, this is, this is not for me. Like, I can't. But, but, but Sean, Mr. McQueenie, the thing I struggle Please with Please call is, me Sean. I, I, I hear so many of our politicians talk about these types of situations. Is there any possibility of changing? I mean, because if we don't give... You know, unless there's, unless there's a, 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 a pact between the parties where they all agree to abide by it is gonna be very difficult because it gives whoever's doing it a great advantage in a society such as ours, where you have a very cynical electorate. Absolutely. Where people think that politics is all about getting something for yourself Absolutely. while you can. That these that these guys are no good to begin with, right? So you might as well just ride them for what you can. Mm -hmm. So unless everybody agrees that they're not gonna be a part of this corruption, 
it's going to be very difficult because, and that's what it is. It, it is really corrupt activity. It is. It is. The idea of trying to get somebody to vote for you based on something material that you do for them, you know? Yeah, well, and this is what I struggle with. I talk to a lot of my political friends as I mature myself, mm -hmm. and we complain about the system. Mm -hmm. But I say, if you're in politics, you should be able to change the system. Is it really possible to change the system in politics? Only, only if you really, because you know, we have, look, we have, we've always had laws, uh, and in more recent times, good laws to, you know, punish uh, corrupt activity in campaigning. But, you know, these, it's really a dead letter. Yeah. Uh, it's, but it's, your it's, personal it's a, it's a life, expression, but your personal more. life, truly, I think, um, as we all know, you're a devout Catholic. Yeah. Um, you're a family, family man. man. When you think about those things, you obviously have instilled values that when you saw that within those first two weeks, you decided you could not compromise your your personal principles and values for that. I think that um, there are a few persons that actually would do that. I believe, and and you know, as we as we start to craft um, the way forward over the next fifty years, it is important for us to make sure that politicians do not promise the sky the moon, the stars, and the sun. Because it's through that that people seem to think that they are owed these things from the politicians. You're absolutely right. You right. know? Yeah. And they also believe that, you know, all politicians have these endlessly deep pockets. Yep. And it creates a vicious cycle for me, no I think, in that in trying to meet these needs. This is where the corruption comes in. Once this is where office. a huge part of the corruption comes in, into our political um, governance. Governance. Yeah. And I, you know, until we're willing to tell people, yes, I can do this. No, I cannot do this. As your MP, these are my priorities. And it's not to you as an individual, it's to my constituents and for the greater good, then we will continue to have this type of gimme, gimme, gimme society. You're absolutely right. I, I think one of the, historically speaking, one of the great mistakes the PLP made in 67, uh, when it was at the height of its popularity in the mm -hmm. country, is that it didn't break the back of this patronage system, mm. which it inherited from the UBB. The difference was that the UBP um, were able to um, keep this patronage system going out of their own pockets because yeah, they were yeah. incredibly wealthy men yeah. in many cases. And they were able to just build these personal fiefdoms. Like San Salvador is a good example, which was basically owned lock, stock and barrel by Roy Solomon. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was such, you know, a lockdown political uh, uh, thing that uh, the PLP didn't put a candidate up yeah. in 67. They knew there was a total waste of time because everybody was on the Roy Solomon's payroll. The problem was that when the PLP took over in 67, uh, it was a party basically of poor men. There yeah. were exceptions like your grandfather yeah, and so yeah. on, but basically poor men. And they didn't have the personal resources to do it. So what did they do? They used the resources of the state. Yeah. So what happened was that suddenly the public service payroll Ballooned. Ballooned. Yep. Because you had to create jobs for these people. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the old days, the guys could afford to hire you if they wanted to. The new guys couldn't do it, so they used the state to do it. And, uh, you know, same thing with, you know, handing out contracts and so on. Mm -hmm. And of course, you now have 50 years yeah. of this mountain that's been created in the meantime with this kind of thing, right? And a huge deficit yep. to, yeah. pay to pay for it. 
Exactly. So, you know, what has to happen, there needs to be a coming together of all of the political forces. It may be very naive even to hope for that. But where there are certain ground rules which are agreed, and there has to be some way of enforcing it. Because the problem, as I said, is that if somebody breaches this pact, they're going to be at a great advantage. Yeah. Because the electorate here is is uh, it's a I hate to say it, it's a very greedy electorate. It and, is, and right? you know I think it's all about managing expectations. Um, like you said, it would be very very difficult to do it. But until we begin to stop making these ridiculous promises yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know manage the expectations of the electorate, we will continue to be the the victims, if you will of this bloated um, public service, service yeah, right. and- uh, And the attendant costs that go with it. Uh, and the attendant costs that go along with it. Absolutely. So, Sean, just a question I have in terms of, you know, what do you tell people today about what does it mean to build a meaningful life? Obviously, you know, you are at the stage now where you're winding down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I think it's important in life to have um, goals things that you want to accomplish and that you actually set out to accomplish rather than just having them as, you know, airy-fairy ideas floating around your head, right? And usually the things that you want to achieve, I'm, 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 and the things I'm talking about achieving uh, are the things that have some enduring value, not like buying a car or yeah. buying a new house, right? Um, and, and the things that you want to do in that regard usually spring from some larger sense of ideals mm -hmm. or idealism that, that, that guides you, you know? And, you know, once you come from that frame of reference, I think it's a lot easier to manage going forward. I'll give you an example of somebody like that. You know, my, my, my wife, for example, we were talking about earlier, Cipriana. Um, uh, she is the, the patron this year of the Miss Bahamas because this is the 50th anniversary yeah. of her um, becoming Miss Bahamas. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you. But the thing that I always remember about that time, you know, was um, uh, uh, she had a choice um, of going to Greece, mm -hmm. which was a big thing back in 50 years ago uh, for two, three weeks um, as a part of the Miss Universe pageant. Uh, or she could have stayed here gave gave all to give all that up to be here for independence mm -hmm. and it was a no-brainer for her she's patriotic she, she stayed here to be because she just wanted to be here for independence amazing uh i wonder if you gave that same choice to people today yeah would it, it how many want. would do it yeah but it was because i mentioned that because you know that was the mindset that she came from to her you know it was a a very important thing you know i was thinking about this in another context recently where dame marguerite was being interviewed on television mm -hmm. And the person interviewing her only wanted to talk about how she was number 16 best dressed in the world. And Dame Marguerite was like, yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah, I mean, that's no big thing. I want to talk about independence. Absolutely. And again, it's because it's the mindset, you know, she's not, she's not a fashion plate. Um, I mean, she's that, of course, but it's, it's a very minor part of, of her persona. Yeah. You know, she's a very serious public figure with very serious ideals that she wants to talk about. And so SIP was the same same way and mm -hmm. is the same way. Um, so I mentioned that by way of, of uh, example of what I'm talking about when I say that when you set out to achieve whatever your goals are, you can't do it in a vacuum. Yeah, It has to spring from a larger sense of, of, of purpose. Yeah. 
Um, and once you have that larger sense of purpose, the things you actually do to achieve that purpose, you know, tend to fall in place a lot. A lot so what would easily. you like to see? I mean, I'm a young man coming up and I ask myself this all the time. How do I live Samilo's legacy where I'm not given troppings and pens in hospital because that's not sustainable. It's, you know, I guess a risk from a safety perspective as well in our day and age. And I ask myself for people like you who spent those last 50 years, what what does that legacy look like you know, for young people? It, it it involves doing exactly what you're doing now mm. and what you're doing, Doretta. You know, and let me just say, I think your grandfather would be so very proud of both of you, uh, you know, and, and your parents, because I think what you're doing, uh, Franklin, uh, in the world of business, mm. I mean, is, is tremendously powerful mm. because there's so few role models like that out there. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody who is succeeding in business in a very diversified way in areas of the economy which are not traditionally associated with black behaviors and doing it at the the the, the top level of the management uh, and ownership structure. You're not some mid-level manager. You're the man who, who's in charge, who, who owns things and runs things, right? We need more examples like that. Um, uh, so I, I think, you know, the power of, personal example is something that can't be uh, can't be un- underestimated. And so my answer to your question is to keep doing what you're doing in that regard and to continue to combine um, uh, philanthropy, mm. uh, social outreach, and evidence of other evidence uh, of social compassion. Yeah. Um, when I spoke the other night, I talked about Sir Franklin Wilson as being yeah, yeah. something of a template for this, yeah. where he too um, has succeeded handsomely in business but he's also developed uh, a tremendous record of, of philanthropy, particularly in the area of education. So I think marrying those two, uh, and that's all you have to do. And a third factor, if I might mm-hmm. add, I think what I gather from a lot of this are also the strong family structures. Agreed. Um, each of the persons that we talk to that achieve these yeah. things, that have these strong mm-hmm. convictions, also not only come from a strong family, structure, strong family structure with a very strong principled Christian background, but are also building their own families right. in such a way. You know, we cannot move away from the fact that the family is the building unit no of our society. Absolutely. Absolutely. And each one of these persons, whether it's Samilo, whether it's Sir Franklin, whether it's Franklin the Third, yeah. whether it's Sean McQueenie, we all share these common factors. I know everyone wants to be liberated. Everybody yeah, wants to be head yeah. of a household. You know, we don't need a husband. We don't need a wife. We... I think those things are so integral to who we are as a people and making sure that we remain grounded, focused, and convicted. Absolutely. No question. And let me say, Lorado, you you don't allow me to get to you. I was talking about Franklin, (laughs) right? But uh, also in your case, to go back to Franklin's question, I think the fact of the matter is that you have been a real trailblazer in the society. No question. Uh, You know, the first, uh, I think you were the first female leader of the opposition. That's for sure. The country has had. Um, you know, you have been an important part of the political uh, space, um, not only as, a, as an MP, but as a cabinet minister, yep. uh, and more recently as a public servant. And I think, you know, in that you are continuing your father's tradition as well. Um, you know, people forget um, that Samilo uh, was a legendary figure, not only 
in politics, but also in the business world. Yeah, absolutely. And the things that he was able to do and the struggles that he had to endure uh, at a time which was infinitely more challenging than it is today. Yeah. You know, when there was one bank. Yeah, that's right. What do, you, what, do you do, what do you do when you're in business and there's only one bank in town? Yeah. And the bank calls you up and says, we're revoking your credit. Yeah, you're done. You see? But the fact is that he was able to withstand that. He was able to develop a network of relationships with important business people quietly, but in the ways that enabled him to survive. Uh, I mean, these are important life lessons. Yeah. And so I think in both your, both your uh, cases, um, you know, Franklin and, and the area of business, and, and you primarily, although not exclusively in the area of politics and public service, I think they represent the two major strands of the legacy of, of Milo Butler. And speaking of your father, by the way, yeah. sorry, I just want to mention this one thing. I just found out recently that according to Paul Adley, who uh -huh. is usually very particular about these things, uh, he actually said that the, um, the, the, the spark, the brain, the brain uh, storm that led to the Mace incident actually came from your father, Franklin. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. The what? Uh, that the idea about throwing the mace out the window. Oh, that that I started didn't know. with. Uh, he said Franklin Butler raised it. Okay, because at, uh, at the council, uh, he was a member of the NGC. I think oh, of the party. Remember, Loftus couldn't raise it. Remember when when Uncle Loftus came? He Uncle said he couldn't Loftus, raise it. That's right. He, he for for many reasons. <laughs> exactly. For many many reasons. Yeah, he he was not a member of the House. Your father. But he was a member of the NGC. Yeah, so maybe they asked him to raise it instead of. Yeah, actually, you know, I think you know where I think you'll find the story is actually in the book that was done on Samilo. Yeah. Okay. I'll, it's, I'll it's in there. It's yeah, in yeah. there. Where Paul, it's it's Paul Adley reminiscing, and he says that the act, the act, actually the idea came from Franklin Butler. Okay. But but you know one thing I want to say without leaving Loretta, and this is one of the things why I've enjoyed doing this work so much mm -hmm. is the more I get to understand the history of our family, mm -hmm. there's so many powerful examples of women leadership in our family, yes. whether it's Milo's mother. I think, you know, I understand Loretta so much more mm -hmm. and even myself so much more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually why people maybe don't understand our relationship because Loretta was one of the first people to kind of prick my consciousness about how as a family mm -hmm. we tend to support men. Mm -hmm as opposed to the women. And so when Loretta kind of raised that with me, I said, listen, you know, I'm gonna make a special effort to make sure I do whatever I can. Mm -hmm. And when you see her work, and you know, I, I spend a lot of time now in public settings with her, right. you really get the appreciation Yes. Uh, for what she means in this generation. Yes, absolutely. And how many young women, young men look up and say, Mrs. Butler, Turner, thank you for what you've, you've done. You've been an inspirational figure. And, and, yeah, and I want to echo. Well, thank you. But I think, I and I appreciate that very much, but I still think that as we look at moving forward over the next 50 years and really carving out a stronger society, we must realize that there are fundamental values yeah. that we must embrace again, mm -hmm. I believe. This mm -hmm. is my opinion. No question. Mm -hmm. To ensure that we have young people that are willing to understand how important it is to sacrifice, mm -hmm. yeah. to work hard, to set goals, and to have conviction of mind, and of course, to also remember that there are principles that guide people who achieve great things. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and it goes back to this whole concept that we spoke about recently at the uh, the event that Sir Franklin and I did about this whole concept of service above self, which is something I enjoyed that in, in thoroughly. in need in the society today, yeah. where where we live in a an, an age where um, you know, self-gratification yes. 
we've heard that a lot. The center of everything. You know, what's in it for me? Um, What can I do to get myself move further ahead of everybody Everybody else? else. You know? Um, And. um, Without regard for how we step on each other. Exactly. Exactly. You You know? know? And. that that represents a change. You know, I was in a discussion the other day where someone was talking about what was very much a part of the Bahamian culture 50, 60 years ago, that where somebody in a neighborhood was building a house, mm-hmm. all of the neighbors <laughs> would, would join in. Yeah. You're talking about that? If we cooked you know? a pot of food, yeah, if you everybody do to, got yeah. If you do that today, you know, you know um, the question would be, what, 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 you know, was, was that all about? You know, I remember what, what on Sunday afternoons, um, you know, obviously in our, in, in our extended family life, we all gathered after church, we all ate, and all of the neighbors, you know, we exchanged plates of food. This one mm-hmm. might have made yeah. potato salad. Yeah. The other one might have made peas and rice. But we lived as community. Yeah. Everyone was able to, well, we knew each other yeah. as well. Yeah. The Bahamas is still a very, very small population. Yeah, We're still very interconnected. I think those are values that we need to try and strengthen again. No question. Yeah. No question. Yeah. So, Sean, one, you know, 50 years later, a scale of one to 10, 10 being top, one being less than ideal. How do you rate the Bahamas? On that sort of uh, <laughs> approach, uh, I would say six and a half, maybe. Mm-hmm. Six and a half. Um, certainly more than five, but certainly, you know, well short of 10. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have a long way to go. I think there's a lot we have accomplished, but certainly the magnitude of the problems we have, the diversity of the problems we have, um, you know, the, the, there can be no room for resting on our laurels. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just too much to be done out there. As a scholar, if you got six and a half out of 10, your grade will probably be borderline B minus C. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Yeah. Um, A being the ultimate uh, grade. What do we have to do to pull ourselves up to an A? I think we need to develop a greater sense of uh, who we are as a people. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to look for ways that bind us together as a people, Mm -hmm. as opposed to not being able to see beyond the ends of our noses where we're only thinking about ourselves and our families, right? You know where you see this uh, on display magnificently in a way that uh, hopefully can be used for the wider society of things we're talking about is in the aftermath of hur- hurricanes. No question. Um, I think, you know, there, was a, there, was, a film, there was a film made of the, the heroic exploits of some men in Grand Bahama. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them with very questionable backgrounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, some of them who we would regard as being, um, you know, <laughs> the worst of the worst, yeah. but who performed heroically. Absolutely. And there, there was a film that showed them, you know, they went out at great personal risk to themselves to rescue people. On jet skis, et cetera. Yeah, who, on jet skis, exactly, who were people who were stuck in the attics or on, on the roofs of their homes. And I mean, that's a great example of how without being asked to do it, there's just a spontaneous um, expression of a sense of community. That's a great example. A sense that you leave your own home. Absolutely. You leave your own home to go out there because you realize that your brother uh, or your sister is in need. 
and that you have to you know rise to the to the challenge of helping that person. The easiest thing in the world would have been for them just to stay home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not don't sure get involved. Safe, yeah. And nobody had to ask them to do it. Yeah. They jump in their jet That's skis and they went down. That's a great example. And so it shows that the impulse is there. Yeah. The, the, the feeling is there. The, the values are there. The, the problem is how do you get those values brought to the fore so they're available not only in an emergency yeah. or in a crisis, but where they become a part of the of the fabric of one's daily life. I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know. I love that. No, I, I think that's that's a great example of the kind of thing that we have to find more of. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and being our brothers and sisters keepers, the well-being of our neighbors. Yep, you know, it's, it's an old expression, you know, being our brother's keeper, but it's still the thing which lies at the heart of all of the great things that this society's done. I mean, your grandfather, for example, I mean, that's what it was all about. If he wanted to, he could have just been a shopkeeper, yep. uh, a, a successful merchant, sending his kids off to the best schools um, and just, you know, relaxing with his money, mm -hmm. right? But instead he uh, saw a wider need and he responded to that need in a way that, he, you know, caused him, you know, great pain, great, involved great sacrifice. Well, so talk, we need, we talk, need, talk we to need, Uncle Frank, we need Uncle Frank more obviously Milo thought so too. <laughs> we need more Milo Butlers, you know? Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, they're in very short supply now, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as we, as we close out, I think, you know, this has, for me, this, has, and I knew this would be like this, this has been um, an eye-opener for me, from you, uh, from an historical perspective. And I thank you. I really do thank you. Well, thank you, you for having me. I've and I hope, that, I hope that we can, we can see as we move forward into our next 50 years, um, more written um, scripts by yourself that are utilized in our educational system. Uh, I just wanted to say, you know, speak to us as, and I think you've already done it, but if you can sort of encapsulate it a bit about us giving service above Myself. self, um, because that, that was the topic that you, you and Sir Franklin spoke to. But, you know, consistently, how do we do it? You know, I think it has to happen at, it has to start with the individual, mm -hmm. at the individual level, or perhaps at the family level. Um, I mean, how often do families sit down after a Sunday dinner, for example, after church or wherever, and say, you know, what is it that we can do? Even with all the struggles we may have as a family, what is it that we can do to make this community in which we live a better place? What is it? Let's yeah. just go around the table. Interesting. Right? Um, uh, you know, to go beyond making speeches and say, what is it specifically we, we can do? Um, there's a friend of mine, for example, who is uh, actually an English woman, a lawyer, uh, and they featured her on ZNS recently, actually featured her husband and children. Mm. Uh, she decided that uh, as a family, they wanted to do something to help make the Bahamas a little cleaner. Mm -hmm. They were just made by the litter that they saw. So uh, every every week, as a family, they go and clean up. They just go out there. And one day, uh, I think a crew from Zednos or somebody was passing. I said, "What are you all doing?" And they said, well, "We're just Clean cleaning up. up the garbage. That's yeah. what we do. We we do this every week. Uh, the couple hours we set aside to do it. And they had their own garbage bags. And we, you know, we we see that the the the, the garbage is put You've away. Just given That's me. a great example of a f one family. Absolutely. You've just given me a phenomenal right? challenge. I agree. I want to I want to challenge you as well. Because this is, I mean, we know what it's like to gather on a Sunday afternoon. 
Um, we know the purpose of that, but we're going to have a community dinner for the 50th anniversary, anniversary. Um, in honor of Sir Milo. I think we as a family, the butlers, can push that challenge out during that community dinner to everyone. for families, and we set the example to find ways that we can make Absolutely. our little communities a better place. For sure. And you know, Loretta, this used to be something which families did so frequently back in the day, so to speak. Uh, I, you mentioned my grandmother earlier, Pearl Cox. Uh, she was a part of a group back in the 50s, I think it was, or the 60s. She, well, she was one of the founders of the Carver Garden Club. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but out of that came an initiative which led to the creation of that fantastically beautiful stretch on Wolf Road that leads to the UB with the Poinciana trees. Yes. Okay. Poinciana trees. Where they did that. That's fantastic. They, they, plant, they planted the trees. <laughs> and it's well documented. They had the press out there. And this, there wasn't anything in this for them apart yeah. from the sheer pleasure of doing something beautiful to enhance the physical environment. Yeah. And this was a group of women um, who decided just out of the blue, hey, this would be a great idea. Absolutely. And, and all you have to do is multiply things like that, yeah. you know. That's right. 10, yeah. 20, 30, 40, 100 cases like that. Yeah, yeah. And you're gonna have a, you're gonna a, have a, difference. a, a much know, better society. And yeah. when you drive down Poinciana Drive. Yeah. That's the coolest, or, most comfortable. Or, or Collins Avenue. Yeah. yeah. Or the Western Road. Yeah. It yeah. seems like it's all been replicated. I agree. This time of year, yeah. it is the most spectacular drive yeah. Yeah. to yeah. be able to see the flamboyance, you Absolutely. know, like a, an arch over your car. Yeah. There was a beautification committee that she was a part of. The Absolutely. Business. So, you know, I think that as we move forward, I mean, I've really enjoyed this. You've, you've actually challenged me personally, um, piqued my interest. I believe that we are going to have to challenge ourselves Thanks. more than just doing this podcast to help educate and to encourage people to, to tell their stories. But we've got to do something even more, more. tangible now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's one for our dinner as we get our, Absolutely. Uh, our directors together. So I want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So Mr. McQueen, I just want to thank you for being a part of this show. Thank you. I, I'm always fascinated to just hear stories, you know. I, thank you. <clears throat> I, as I listen to the history I, I, and do this, doing this podcast and hearing so many different perspectives, I myself would not have said I was a historian, but I can tell you I'm so much more engaged in hearing so much more as really I try to figure out what the next 50 years look like because certainly while I don't believe politics is my path, I certainly believe that... Uh, defining the next 50 years, whether that's in business or through philanthropy and through some of the community outreach that we continue to do as a, as a, as a foundation and as a family, mm -hmm. we have to try to understand the history so we can build upon uh, the next 50 years and make sure that when I'm on the other side of this camera mm -hmm. and someone's asking me <laughs> 50 years from now, what have I done or what, 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 right. what would I make of our country? You know, I'm in a position to you know, take some of the mm -hmm. stories and, and, and build the bridge right. from what I call independence to where we are. Because I tell people I don't know Samilo. So yeah. oftentimes people think I know Samilo because mm -hmm. I'm a part of the story, but I never knew Samilo. Right. But I right. can certainly tell you my father made every effort. He used to say, just in case my head go cold, you need to know yep. the story or you need to know this. Yeah. And so I appreciate you, you know, being there, uh, the contribution you've made to our country. Thank you. Uh, certainly the history that you shared today is one that uh, I think more and more of our behaviors need. And I'm going to encourage you, you know, to continue to tell your story, man. I, Thank you. I, 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 and I to write thoroughly, it as well, because I, he's not fearful of writing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I thoroughly enjoyed the, 
the UB thing on idealism with you and Sir Franklin, you know, when, when I'm in that environment, I feel like I'm at my daddy's feet, you know, <laughs> where you literally could just spend all afternoon yeah. and, and just listening and, and right, taking kind of notes of, of what it is. And I think that the more you can do that, would be extremely helpful. Thank you. And I want to, I want to, I want to, as before we close out and obviously give our thanks once again to our sponsors and of course, to our very special guest who just blown away today. Thank you. I just want to say that it's so interesting because, you know, Franklin was not here um, on this side when we turned uh, 50 years ago when we became independent. Yeah, yeah. And for him to actually be able to say, let's do this so that we're able to have a footprint as we move forward into the next 50 years. I just want to say thank you very much. Um, I'm glad we're doing it together. Uh, but as we move forward, you know, I believe you will continue to become that historian, you know, so that you will one day write a book or we will all write a book. But thank you very, thank you. very thank you. much. Thank you very much for yeah. having me. I've really thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, the, the last 50 years have been uh, a time of great challenge for us, but I don't think it's going to be anything compared to the next 50. I mean, okay. you're talking about challenges. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I just think, for example, of this whole climate change um, uh, crisis that we're into now, where, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a really sobering thought when you consider that 50 years from now, the Bahamas, as we know it today, Probably is not even going to exist. exist. I'm going to be they're going to be Al islands in the Mount Alvernia. Yeah. That's going to be the last thing <laughs> I mean, that, that goes that, underwater. That, that is a hell of a thought, you. <laughs> when you realize that, you know, you look at a map and you say, "This is where my I live. This is my country," yeah. and you realize that some of those islands are going to be underwater. Absolutely. You know, and then when you think of even, you know, even more complex challenges, you know, you know, how do you go about creating a a a socially uh, peaceful society. Yeah. We have so many uh, elements which are warring with each other. Yep. Uh, I mean, the whole issue of of integrating the uh, the, the, the the Haitian um, uh, community into the larger fabric of the society. I mean, th these are just two problems that come That's to mind. That's right. But the, the the point is that the challenges are going to be very very complex. They're going to be numerous. Yep. And we can't leave it to the politicians to solve it to solve them. Yeah. It's going to take a collective effort. Yeah. yeah. So well said. But I'm, but I'm optimistic. I oh, think absolutely. That, I think, and you've I think not finished giving service yet, it's sir. A great, it's a great country. So and we're I, I want to thank be even you from the bottom of our thank hearts, you. the Butler Found Legacy Foundation, um, obviously the current today yep. at Bahar Mar. Uh, we, we thank you. Uh, this has been amazing. Thank you. Thank really you so it. much and, for sharing, Franklin. And to our guests who have... Uh, uh, continue to engage with us. We want to invite you to continue to follow us on YouTube, of course, on Apple Podcasts. Um, we want you to know that we do these episodes to share stories, to enlighten, because we believe that to the challenges that we discussed today, that if you don't understand the context of our history, the, the challenges of the next 50 years are going to be unsolvable. And so we want to invite you to continue to follow us as we have great guests on the show and to continue to celebrate 50 years of independence. So we thank you to all those who continue to write to Loretta and I every week and tell us how much they've enjoyed the podcast. And again, Mr. McQueenie, we want to close by thanking you so much thank you. for being a part of this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Loretta. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you very, very much. much. It's always a joy to have thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you guys.